Okay, so we're going to get started. I want to thank everybody for coming on a very special day. We're going to have our Shira Kansas Memorial Lecture soon. But before that, we are privileged and honored to have Dr. Michael Chansky with us today. Dr. Chansky is a professor and chair of emergency medicine at Cooper Medical School at Rowan University in Camden, New Jersey. Dr. Chansky did his undergraduate training actually at University of Maryland. From there, he went to medical school at University of Rochester and then did his residency in internal medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And as we were chatting last night at dinner, he did so many, so many months in emergency medicine, he essentially fell in love with emergency medicine. I think 12 months out of his 36 with IM training were in the ED. And then shortly thereafter, did virtually all of his time in emergency medicine. And with the development of board certification in emergency medicine, he was able to take his boards, become board certified, and has exclusively, and I think extensively, practiced in emergency medicine. When Dr. Chansky finished residency, he was chief resident. He won a distinguished teaching award at the conclusion of his chief resident year. Shortly after being hired, he was given the director of emergency medicine position over an ED that had essentially a volume of 25,000 patients, seven faculty, no scholarly activity. And what he has done over the past several years or several decades with his department is truly amazing in terms of developing the growth of the ED. The ED itself now sees over 75,000. Ha he has over 30 full-time faculty, and many of you, many of you are familiar with the academic productivity of the faculty, especially, say, within critical care and resuscitation at Cooper. He's won a tremendous amount of teaching awards, I think at least a dozen teaching awards, authored several textbook chapters, spoken numerously at ASEP, as well as other regional, national, and international lectures. Uh, he's actually the first faculty at the Camden campus to be inducted into the Master's Education Guild. So just done a tremendous job. We were very fortunate to have him come down today to be able to give us two lectures. In chatting with Dr. Matu uh, ahead of time, he said Dr. Chansky gives just an amazing second to none acid-based lecture that we just have to hear, acid-based made easy. So he's going to start with that, and then we'll have a break, and then come back together for the Shira Memorial Lecture. So please help me and welcoming Dr. Chansky to University of Maryland. Not, not sure I, I deserve all those accolades, but um, thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I've, I know that a bunch of you in this room probably interviewed with me. I know that um, we've lost uh, a number of residents to Maryland that we ranked very highly, and if you interviewed at Cooper, you certainly met with me because I interview everybody. This is, as, as they were fumbling with the, with the uh, IT stuff, it kind of reminded me of a story that when I was chief resident at Penn, obviously we had a tray of slides, and Eugene Bronwald, who I'm sure Brian remembers, but was really the premier cardiologist in the country, was giving a visiting professor talk at Penn, and Larry Early was our chairman of uh, medicine and Dr. Bromwell was down here, and the IT person, uh, we heard a crash, and he looked through the window, and he had dropped 110 slides of Dr. Bromwell. And he was not a very patient man. Um, and Larry Early looks at me and goes, get up there and fix it, because of course the chief resident's in charge of fixing anything IT related. And Dr. Bromwell also had not numbered his slides. so. <laughs> It was a very interesting challenge trying to get his talk back together. This was a little easier. 
Um, this talk is an area that um, I became interested in primarily because when I started at Penn, um, my first uh, attending always talked about numbers. And in emergency medicine, critical care, internal medicine, obviously we have to make very quick decisions on illness and differential diagnosis based primarily on our history, a little on our exam, and maybe a little more on the numbers. What are the numbers? And I did not have very good um, acid-base electrolyte training at Rochester. Um, I kind of, I don't know how I got into Penn as an internal medicine resident, but um, I felt very lost initially, and sort of my response to that was to try to learn as much about it as I could. And as you can imagine, in emergency medicine, there aren't a lot of emergency physicians who like talking about this. So it sort of became a passion of mine, and, um, and, and I, I've tried to put together sort of a practical that you can take home, uh, immediately use uh, talk that um, you can leave here and go out to the ED and use. So my goal of this talk um, is to have you leave the room feeling very comfortable, immediately recognizing, you know, one of the four major acid-base disturbances in normal compensation. And thankfully, an acid-base, to make it simple, you can't have two respiratory disturbances at once. So there's really only three disturbances that you need to learn and recognize in any individual patient. Know the differential diagnosis of those disturbances, and know simple compensation, and then you're off and running in the care of your patients. Generate a differential diagnosis that's reasonable, rapidly interpret electrolytes and venous blood gases. Arterial blood gases are really slowly going away. I, I don't do them. I haven't done them in a long time. I think you can get almost all the information you need from a simple venous blood gas. Um, other objective is for you to feel comfortable in 40 minutes to differentiate simple, mixed, meaning two acid-base disturbances, and triple disturbances and the common clinical scenarios they occur in, um, what the therapy is for common acid-base issues, work through some practice cases. Um, the handout I gave you has absolutely everything that's in my lecture and talk, including the cases and including the answers to the cases, working through them and sort of the method that I'm going to take you through. Um, and this is a method I sort of learned and developed through uh, the nephrology division at the University of Pennsylvania, which was one of the strongest areas um, in that, in the Department of Medicine there. We're going to focus on just important clinical disorders. I mean, you know, we, we don't really have to worry about aldosterone secreting tumors in the emergency department. So we're going to talk about things that are important um, and that are real ED cases. So in purest terms, you know, an acidemia and an alkalemia, that is just a state of the pH. An acidosis and, and an alkalemia is just whether the pH is high or low. But there are processes within the body that tend to lead to acidemia and alkalemia. So if you think about the respiratory processes, and again, there's only two, think of PCO2 as acid. And this is, you know, for interns and students, if you just think of PCO2 as acid, when it's low, it's a respiratory alkalosis. When it's high, it's a respiratory acidosis. So just think of CO2 as acid. And then metabolic processes, again, there's only two, and it is on based on the bicarb concentration. 
Um, when it's high, you have a metabolic alkalosis. Low, you have a metabolic acidosis. Pretty simple. Those are the processes. And primary processes are almost always partially compensated for. So the acute process is usually evident from the pH, assuming the patient read the book and just has one process. And we're going to show you examples. The only exception is in a true chronic respiratory alkalosis. So a patient with asthma for a week, um, uh, with subacute thrombotic disease of the lung, with you know subacute pulmonary emboli, chronic pulmonary emboli, they may come to the ED with a respiratory alkalosis where their kidneys have caught up with the low PCO2 and excreted it to a rate where the pH is almost normal. So a chronic respiratory alkalosis is really the only disturbance that you can compensate almost to a normal pH. So compensation with metabolic processes is immediate. So obviously a metabolic acidosis, the patient, you know, is breathing down PCO2. With a metabolic alkalosis, they will hypoventilate to the point of a hypoxic drive. Usually the PCO2 won't get higher than 48. With respiratory processes, the compensation is more delayed. So you know, a heroin overdose whose PCO2 is acutely 80, their bicarb is obviously going to be normal because they haven't had time to retain bicarb in the kidney and elevate their bicarb to compensate for that PCO2. So respiratory processes, respiratory alkalosis and acidosis, the metabolic compensation takes 12 to 36 hours to equilibrate. And this is all pathophys I'm sure you're familiar with. And, and when faced with complex numbers in a sick patient, what students and inexperienced practitioners tend to do is look at the numbers and kind of panic. And the key is to just take a deep breath. The patient has the disease. You just take a deep breath and keep it simple. Look at the, I'm going to show you the most important things in a venous blood gas. Obviously, you have to calculate the anion gap on every set of electrolytes you see. And, you know, I'm sure your lab maybe puts it in there for you, but your reflex should be with every set of electrolytes, even if they look normal, calculate the anion gap to make sure you're not missing something. And a high or a low anion gap can be a clue to significant disease. And then obviously, most importantly, what's the clinical picture? History, exam, you know, a urine dipstick for ketones, um, specific gravity, and an EKG. These are all, I'm really big on easy, simple, cheap, non-invasive tests, and there's nothing easier, cheaper, or more non-invasive than a urine dip, an EKG. Um, you know, those are very simple things. So when faced with a VBG or an ABG, obviously you look at the pH, is it high or low, what's the state of the patient? Are they in an acidemic state or an alkalemic state? that may give a hint to the process that's going on. The PCO2, which again, just think of it as acid, is it high or low? And then you look at the bicarb. Now remember, the bicarb concentration on a venous blood gas or an arterial blood gas is not a measured value. It's calculated by the, from the pH and the PCO2. So I tend to ignore the bicarb that's on a blood gas or a venous blood gas. You want to look at the bicarb that's on the set of electrolytes. So in simplest terms, in simplest terms, and this will all be familiar with you, a low pH, meaning the state of the blood is acidemic, and a low CO2, 
is a primary metabolic acidosis, and there's compensation. So there's respiratory compensation there. And that is ob that's obviously a pattern that we need to be, as emergency physicians, very tuned into, because we cannot miss an ongoing metabolic acidosis. That's a process we cannot miss. That harms patients. So we need to identify even very subtle metabolic acidosis when it occurs. A low pH and a high CO2, again, CO2 is acid, so the state is acidemic. That has to be a respiratory acidosis, and bicarb will go up over time to compensate for that. And that is, you know, seen in patients with um, COPD, sleep apnea, kyphoscoliosis. There's multiple with uh, neurologic diseases um, like myasthenia, Guillain-Barre. So, you know, you all know sort of the etiologies of an elevated CO2. In elevated pH, so the state is alkalemia, what are the processes leading to that? A high pH and a low CO2, again, CO2 is acid, so if the CO2 is low, that's less acid, so this is a respiratory alkalosis, and the patient over time will pee out bicarb. And then lastly, an elevated pH and an elevated CO2, okay, that would be so the state is alkalemia, but the CO2 is high. It doesn't make sense. So this is a patient who has a primary metabolic alkalosis, and they're hypoventilating to compensate. And those are the four primary processes that we may see and do see in our patients. So you've all learned sort of formulas for compensation. I've seen lots of little different rules. The ones that I think are the simplest and easiest to apply and um, are the most important one is Winner's Formula. Now, Winner's Formula, this is one that you have to know. If you're an internist, a critical care physician, an emergency physician, you need to know Winner's Formula. And Winner's Formula was derived in a paper on young patients with diabetic ketoacidosis and doing a, a graph of their PCO2 and their bicarb and in Pure metabolic acidosis, the PCO2 is one and a half times the bicarb plus eight. It's that simple. And that is a, if you use this formula for every anion gap you see, or non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, we'll get into that, but if someone has a bicarb of 10, one and a half times 10, 15, plus eight is 23, a compensated metabolic acidosis, their PCO2 should be 23. And if it's 30, they have a respiratory acidosis as well, and that's a bad thing. A metabolic acidosis and a respiratory acidosis is very bad. That's a death combination. If the PCO2 is 12, then they have a metabolic acidosis and a respiratory alkalosis. But if their PCO2 is in the 23 range, they have a compensated metabolic acidosis. And is this important? I think it is, and we'll get into why in some examples. Metabolic alkalosis, and the only reason I know these formulas is I give this lecture a fair amount. So in metabolic alkalosis, you hypoventilate. So for every milliequivalent, your bicarb's up, your CO2 goes up about 0.6. But remember, your hypoxic drive will kick in, and you only can go up to about a PCO2 of 48 for pure compensation for a severe metabolic alkalosis. For respiratory acidosis, so a patient who chronically retains CO2, 
their bicarb goes up about three and a half for every 10 their CO2 is elevated. So if you see a patient with COPD whose bicarb is 29, you can sort of go backwards and say they probably live at a PCO2 of about, of about 50. You can sort of figure out where their home is. So if you set up non-invasive ventilation or have to intubate them, you don't overshoot their PCO2 and give them a severe respiratory alkalosis and tetany and all that stuff. And for a chronic respiratory alkalosis, um, for every 10, your PCO2 goes down, your bicarb goes down about five. I really like this in ill asthma patients. You know, if you pay attention to your electrolytes in patients with asthma who've been sick for several days, you will notice that their bicarbs are often 18, 19, and they don't have an anion gap. And what they've had is a chronic respiratory alkalosis and a hypoxic drive for days that's been so severe that their PCO2 has been around, you know, 25 to 30, and they've peed out bicarb down to a bicarb of 18 or even less. So they've lost buffering capacity during the buildup of their illness. And that's important because when an asthma patient crashes and their PCO2 goes up dramatically, they have less buffering capacity than normal. So it is very pertinent to sort of notice the bicarb on patients, for example, with severe asthma. So this, this was in a medicine article in 1977, and I, I found this pretty profound. Um, I was a um, second-year medical student. Um, the anion gap, and this is in, this is probably one of my favorite articles. It's a medicine article called The Anion Gap. And if you're really interested in acid base, it's, it's truly a landmark article. Um, I sometimes sleep with two things under my mattress. One is my driver. I never give up my driver. And this article. So those are the two things that my wife thinks I'm crazy about. But. So this article, The Anion Gap, is defined as a subtle finding hidden within the electrolytes which, when appreciated and looked for, provides important clues to the diagnosis of disease and management. It's derived from electrolytes, an important index of acid-base status, and a clue to the presence of many potentially fatal diseases. A clue to the presence. I mean, that's what we do. That's what emergency medicine is all about. And this quote in a medicine uh, article three years before emergency medicine even had a board, I think is very profound and is why this area is so important to us as frontline practitioners. So, um, and I think I, I referenced this in your um, handout. So we're all electrically neutral, so cations have to equal anions, and sodium accounts for about 90% of our cations, and potassium, calcium, mag is the rest. Chloride and bicarb are the major anions. Phosphate, sulfate, proteins account for the rest. And an anion gap, as you know, is sodium minus chloride plus bicarb. And normal, depending on your lab, is anywhere between 8 and 14. Our, you know, I like to just round it off and say normal is about 10. So we're all about 10. So the etiology of a high anion gap is metabolic acidosis, metabolic acidosis, metabolic acidosis. In severe dehydration, high-dose carbenicillin and penicillin, there are some cases of severe alkalosis that changes the ionic um, 
potential of proteins that can give you a small anion gap. Forget about that. The important thing is in your clinical practice, if a patient has an anion gap, they have a metabolic acidosis. And the differential and the hallmark of a metabolic acidosis is obviously accumulation of organic acid and extracellular space. Bicarb goes down, anion gap goes up because you have this acid. If you have an acid that can be ketones or um, reacts with bicarb, quickly goes to CO2 and water, you're left with sodium and the unmeasured anion, um, and the net result is you're acidified and the retention of unmeasured anions replaces bicarb and you have an anion gap. So the diagnostic approach to someone with an anion gap is really simplified. Um, the presence of either now a normal or a high anion gap acidosis, a very limited differential diagnosis. And I'm not a big mud piles guy. I think that mixes in the hyperchloremic and the anion gap. I, I'm very simple. I can only remember three or four things, lactate, ketones, uremia, ingestions. I, I can remember that. So an anion gap acidosis is lactate, ketones, uremia, ingestion. So lactic acidosis from any reason, ketones pathophysiologically due to diabetes, uh, alcoholic ketoacidosis, starvation, renal failure, generally acute renal failure, chronic renal failure will give you an anion gap no higher than 17 or 18 because you have retained fixed acids due to the renal failure. So you don't get... If you have an anion gap that's much higher than 18 in someone with renal failure, you should be looking for a secondary cause of the anion gap. And then, you know, obviously the toxins, salicylates are much more of a respiratory alkalosis. Methanol and ethylene glycol are obviously um, metabolized to acids. INH, iron, carbon monoxide, cyanide obviously lead to the uncouple oxidative phosphorylation and lead to lactic acidosis. Don't even worry about peraldehyde. Uh, used to be given for alcohol withdrawal in the VA with glass syringes and glass tubing, and probably Brian's the only one who even remembers the drug. Um, so, you know, a pearl in emergency medicine is obviously in an unknown, not clear case of an anion gap metabolic acidosis. You should do a quick osmolar gap and always think about methanol and ethylene glycol. The severe metabolic acidosis cases that, that we've had in our department over the years that have been tricky or delayed have always been the practitioner didn't just include methanol and ethylene glycol in their differential and look for oxidative, you know, the, the crystals in the urine, bring out the woods lamp and, you know, see if the urine lights up due to the, the fluorescein in it do a careful eye exam, think about methanol. Again, if you don't think about these two etiologies of a high anion gap and on your boards, you know, they're not going to give you, they're just going to give you a sick patient. So you're going to have to calculate the osmolar gap. And in an elevated osmolar gap in the setting of an anion gap, you have to think about methanol and ethylene glycol. Unfortunately, not all patients with significant methanol and ethylene glycol intoxication will have a big osmolar gap. We've seen cases that, that um, have a normal osmolar gap. So again, the osmolar gap is you're you calculating the osms, um, which is two times the sodium, the glucose divided by 18, BUN divided by 2.8. If you work in Camden, the blood alcohol divided by 4.5. You have to add in alcohol because that's osmolarly active as well. Um, 
and then you do a measured osm, and if the gap difference is greater than 10, 15, 20, you should think about additional alcohols added to the serum. Very, very rare. Um, again, anion gap without acidosis, we discussed that. And obviously another uh, in-service exam board, Pearl, that a patient who has ketones in their urine, smells like ketones, but it does not have an anion gap, that patient has to have isopropyl alcohol intoxication. And they're probably going to need to be dialyzed. But isopropyl alcohol, remember from organic chemistry, the, the oxygen is in the middle. So that can only be metabolized to acetone. You can't go on to an acid. So ketosis without the anion gap is always isopropyl alcohol intoxication. And you will see it clinically as well as on the boards. Now, forget about that, that busy slide. If you lose um, bicarb in exchange for chloride, an even exchange, you get a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. It's that simple. So that's a low bicarb, high chloride, no anion gap. So the loss to bicarb is acidifying, and you're retaining a measured anion chloride replacing the bicarb. So that's all a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis is. They rarely are acute or harmful to a patient, but you may observe them. Um, lethargic children with diarrhea seem to have, you know, bicarb-wasting diarrheas, unlike adults. So you see the lethargic kid with a bicarb of 10 and the chloride of 120. Um, renal tubular acidoses, pancreatic fistulas, early renal failure, carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. Um, that's how they acidify. Um, dilutional acidosis. I always smile when I see that on the slide because I, I once gave this talk. I think it was at Christiana. And I made a comment that if you squeeze four liters of normal saline into a medical student and measure their serum really quickly, their chloride will be 120 and their bicarb will be 15, and you've induced a dilutional acidosis. And in my evaluations, I, one person wrote, don't pick on medical students and degrade medical students in your talk. So I love medical students. I've been teaching my whole career. It always makes me smile when I see that because I think about that evaluation I got. So I'm not picking on any medical students. In post-treatment of DKA, I'm going to talk about um, in this talk and actually in our, in our second talk. So how do you treat a metabolic acidosis? Obviously, everything we do in emergency medicine, we treat the underlying cause. I'm not a bicarb guy. I mean, I don't give, I, I don't give patients bicarb unless my resident pushes me to give bicarb. But you can consider bicarb in an adult with cardiac instability, you know, pH lower than 7.1, certainly can consider it. Um, the internist in me has to talk about a low anion gap. So if you calculate an anion gap and it's zero or it's negative, that should cause you to go, okay, what does that mean? And number one, never trust the lab. So you probably ought to repeat the electrolytes. And, you know, a key to electrolyte interpretation is something bizarre that doesn't fit clinically. Don't trust the lab. Trust the patient. And if the patient and EKG look well and the lab looks ridiculous, obviously repeat the labs. But a low anion gap is usually due to multiple myeloma, hypercalcemia, Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, a disorder that leads to very high paraproteins that are positively charged. So 
Um, and actually, one of these was on my boards, my internal medicine boards, not emergency medicine. Uh, lithium, and if you, if you look in the OBGYN floor, the women that are on MAG and patients that come in with lithium intoxication, you'll notice their anion gap's a little low. You know, it's not going to be negative. It's the patients with multiple myeloma that have an anion gap of zero or minus two or three. Um, rarely, there's a rare syndrome of bromism. Bromide is measured as two chlorides. Um, that's very rare. Um, and in severe hypoalbuminemia, you can get a low anion gap. But if you see, the pearl here is if you see an anion gap of zero, um, you should suspect disorders like paraproteins, multiple myeloma and Waldenstrom. So that's metabolic acidosis. Metabolic alkalosis, we could spend an hour talking about it, but I'm going to make metabolic al alkalosis very simple. So metabolic alkalosis is generated by volume depletion. So we see lots of patients who are volume depleted. They're vomiting, they have diarrhea, they're on diuretics. The most important one for us to remember is third spacing. Patients with small bowel obstruction, acute appendicitis, pancreatitis can have liters of edema fluid in their abdominal cavity that will not clinically be evident as a patient being dry, but they are severely volume depleted. So what that does is the body believes it needs to retain water. It defends volume over tonicity, okay? So, and, and through aldosterone, you will avidly hold on to sodium. And if you're avidly holding on to sodium and you've been vomiting, third spacing, diarrhea, MG2, been on a diuretic, the chances are you're chloride deficient. So you're holding on to sodium. You need to hold on to sodium with an anion. The anion that's available in the distal tubule is bicarb. So in metabolic alkalosis, you're volume depleted, you're holding on to sodium, you're holding on to sodium with bicarb in a shrinking intravascular volume, and you're excreting potassium. So what do you see in metabolic alkalosis? Volume depletion, a high bicarb, and a low potassium. It's that simple. And the treatment's pretty darn simple, too, as you can imagine. Fluid and KCL and identifying the underlying etiology. So we see lots of patients, obviously, with these things. Remember third spacing. And I was struck during my surgery rotation as a third-year student operating on a patient with a small bowel obstruction and the amount of fluid that was in that patient's bowel. I'll never forget it. And it's sort of stuck in my brain how patients can be so pre-renal and dry with intra-abdominal things such as a bowel obstruction or pancreatitis. So you want to make the diagnosis. It's a clinical diagnosis. A urine chloride can help you in certain settings. If a patient's abusing diuretics, it can help you. And the obvious treatment's the underlying cause, volume and potassium. Respiratory acidosis can be due to any process that affects from the brain down to the alveoli that leads to hypoventilation. So CNS depression due to anywhere from heroin to intracranial bleed, neuromuscular diseases, uh, airway obstruction, respiratory failure of any cause, chest wall abnormalities, all these. I, I've never seen a patient with a pure pulmonary embolism, thrombobotic disease, present with a respiratory acidosis, ever. I mean, they always have a respiratory alkalosis. Obviously, they're ventilating dead space. But, you know, sometimes resident will bring this up in the differential, and I've just never seen it. I'm sure it occurs, but respiratory alkalosis is the other process I think we need to be tuned into. Um, 
the earliest acid-base disturbance of hypovolemic shock, um, of shock of any cause due to sepsis, is a respiratory alkalosis. And that is often on the in-service exam. It's not a metabolic acidosis. That's much later. So the earliest acid-base disturbance of shock is a respiratory alkalosis. And shock is a disease of perfusion. So if you're hypoperfusing the brain, the patient's going to begin hyperventilating, bring their CO2 down and their oxygen up. Um, you know, pulmonary disease, obviously asthma, pulmonary emboli, early pneumonia. Um, and these are the four that we need to sort of remind ourselves. Every patient who's pregnant has a chronic respiratory alkalosis. Uh, patients with liver disease for unknown cause, unknown etiology, cirrhosis, fatty liver, um, have a respiratory alkalosis, hyperthyroidism, obviously, and salicylates. Um, it's the primary acid-base disturbance of salicylate intoxication. So mixed acid-base disturbances is a simple term to mean a patient has more than one process going on at once, and a simple disturbance with compensation can't explain the picture. In the ED, the most common is a metabolic acidosis and a respiratory alkalosis. So patients with heart failure, sepsis, shock of any cause, hypovolemia, or liver failure, salicylate intoxication, you're going to see these dual disorders. So we look at the electrolytes. We figure out the anion gap. We use Winner's formula. We see what the PCO2 should be. Um, so here's one example. Now, if you look at these electrolytes, and I'm, I'm not giving you easy ones. You know, we're going to do some tough cases here. But you look at these electrolytes, and your gut reaction probably is, that looks normal. Bicarb's okay, K's okay, DUN's okay. It doesn't look bad, but if you fail to calculate the anion gap, and I have to do this with you, the anion gap's 23. That's abnormal. Patient has a metabolic acidosis. It's hidden within the electrolytes. So lactate, ketones, uremia, ingestions. So your reflex has to be do Winner's formula. So one and a half times the bicarbs, 33, plus eight's 41, plus or minus two. PCO2 should be normal, should be about 40, 41, 42, and it's 23. So this patient has a metabolic acidosis, lactate, ketones, uremia ingestions. You know, the clinical picture is one of, you know, lactate. They have a respiratory alkalosis. PCO2 should be around 40, and it's 23. So that would go along with sepsis, hypovolemia. She's probably not pregnant. Um, you know, you could think about salicylates. And then the question comes up, how do you figure out if there's another disturbance? Now, we've already defined respiratory. You can't have two respiratory disturbances at once. So we have a metabolic acidosis. How do we figure out in a patient who has an anion gap whether they have a metabolic alkalosis as well? It's very simple. It's really simple. And you probably have heard the term delta-delta. Um, and I, I like to explain it practically. So you all have an anion gap of 10. Everyone in this room has 10. This patient has 20, an anion gap of 23. So their anion gap, 23, minus 10, which is normal, means they have 13 unmeasured anions added to their serum, right? 13. And you can assume and this has been validated by nephrologists and in many studies, that their bicarb was buffered one-to-one -one 
by the 13 milliequivalents of acid you have just calculated through the delta delta. So their bicarb came down 13. So what I like to use the term bicarb equivalent, probably a word I, something I made up, but their bicarb equivalent would be 13 added to 22. Their bicarb would be 35 if they didn't have an anion gap. And if you saw bicarb at 35, you would all say that's elevated. The patient has a metabolic alkalosis as well. Three disturbances, metabolic acidosis, metabolic alkalosis, and a respiratory acidosis. In electrolytes that look normal, look pretty normal. Now, we're going to go over this. If you got a little bit of that, that would be good. So this is called the delta. I mean, people call this a delta delta. And this is your handout. And a metabolic acidosis, you take the patient's anion gap minus a normal one. That is the amount, milliequivalent per deciliter of acid added to their serum. That buffered their bicarb down one to one. If you add it to the patient's measured bicarb, and it's over 24, 25, the patient also has a metabolic alkalosis. And hopefully that makes sense to you pathophysiologically. It's really a pretty, I think, simple concept. Oh, here's another one of my favorite cases. Medicine resident showed me this patient's really sick. And I said, well, what are the numbers? And he said, they're normal. And uh, the patient looked too sick. I said, show me the numbers. Now, obviously, the chloride looks a little low. But those numbers don't look bad. BUN's a little elevated. If you looked at those quickly, your brain might say, yeah, it looks pretty normal. So, and the reason you think it's normal is this bicarb. Bicarb's normal. So let's do the anion gap. So the anion gap is 30, right? It's 30. That's high. Lactate, ketones, uremia, ingestion, this patient has a metabolic acidosis. And this was pre-venous blood gas, so a blood gas is sent. And the pH is normal. How can that be? An anion gap of 30 and a normal pH. Now, doing Winner's formula in an anion gap with someone with a bicarb of 24 is not going to be valid. Winner's formula, remember, was developed in patients with diabetic ketoacidosis who, have, who had very low uh, bicarbs. So if you did Winner's formula, 1.5 times 24 is 36, plus 8 is 44. That doesn't make sense. And that would never be on an exam, and no one would ever expect you to use Winner's formula in a patient with a normal bicarb, even with an anion gap of 30. So assuming there's no respiratory disturbance, how do we justify the normal pH? Well, they have a metabolic acidosis. The only thing possible is they must have a metabolic alkalosis as well. So let's do that delta-delta. So this patient's anion gap's 30, normal's 10. 30 minus 10 is 20. Patient has 20 milliequivalents of unmeasured anions added to the serum. 20 plus 24 is 44. Their bicarb equivalent's 44. So at the bedside, within a couple seconds, you know this patient has a metabolic acidosis and a metabolic alkalosis, two severe processes that have led to a normal pH. Now, if I told you this patient was a chronic alcoholic who hasn't had any normal nutrition, who was drinking until 30 hours ago, and finally was brought in vomiting, 
looked very dry, obviously had no glycogen stores, and had what would the, and this is a board exam question, what is the fluid of choice to start on this patient? Normal saline, half normal saline, D5 normal saline, or D5 half normal? What would you start in this patient? There is a pure answer. Someone would know the answer. What is this syndrome? What syndrome did I describe? Alcoholic ketoacidosis. You, is, there's no more classic numbers than that. The alcoholic who isn't eating, who's glycogen poor in their liver, who only carbohydrate is two carbon fragments, who when they carbon and alcohol inhibits ketone formation in the, in the hepatic mitochondria. So when they stop drinking and the, and the alcohol level goes down, you disinhibit ketone formation. And in alcoholic ketoacidosis, you get this outpouring of ketones. And the patients often have an elevated lipase and pancreatitis and all that stuff. So this is a classic alcoholic ketoacidosis. And on the board, you must start D5 normal saline. It's the one patient where the resuscitation is D5 normal saline. And if the patient suddenly develops a six-nerve palsy and vertical nystagmus, what have you done to them? What do they need now? Thymine, right, because you've induced an acute Wernicke's encephalopathy, and that's the exact patient you're going to see it in. I've seen that twice in my career, by the way, once at the VA and once at Cooper. So fairly normal numbers with a normal pH in a sick patient. And again, within seconds, by interpreting the numbers accurately, you know what's wrong with the patient and you know the therapy. So now I'm going to go through some of the cases. I've gotten through this pretty quickly. So um, this, is, this, this is a patient, M.M. I actually know his name. He's a patient who's been coming to Cooper for about 25 years, and we believe his mission in life is to educate our residents about methanol and ethylene glycol. Because no matter what we do, he comes in every 18 months. And so he's now probably about 32. But um, this is one of his exact presentations. 25-year-old history of schizophrenia. He's brought in unconscious. Um, and, the, and EMS actually says, we smell radiator fluid all over the guy. Um, and those are his initial numbers, obviously. He has something life-threatening going on. Um, his anion gap's 31. Um, pH is very low. Um, you know, this is, this is a guy who back in the day, if you didn't have dialysis, you would, you would put some alcohol, get, you know, you'd give him either IV alcohol or put down an NG tube and give him some ethanol to try to inhibit the alcohol dehydrogenase from acting on the ethylene glycol. But, so his anion gap, one and a half times the bicarb is um, six, plus eight's 14, plus or minus two. So his, bi his PCO2 is 14. So he, if you saw this on your boards and you were asked to describe the acid-base disturbance, you would not say metabolic acidosis and respiratory alkalosis. You would not say that. Even though the PCO2 is 14, he only has a metabolic acidosis. He has, he's compensated. He has normal compensation. He does not have a respiratory problem. And let's see if he has a metabolic alkalosis. He has an anion gap of 31, normal's 10. 
31 from 10 is 21, 21 plus 4 is bicarb equivalence 25. That's not a metabolic alkalosis. So he has a pure metabolic acidosis, simple. And he survived that episode. Um, any emergency department that works with renal patients, we have a ton of hemodialysis patients. They're complicated acid-base patients because obviously they don't have normal renal function. So this was a patient who had not been dialyzed for a couple days um, with abdominal pain and vomiting. So let's do the anion gap. It is um, 27. I could do these with you. 27. Am I right? 9, 10, 11. Yeah. So there's a metabolic acidosis, right? Lactate, ketones, uremia, ingestions. Um, remember, you can have an anion gap of 18 due to renal failure. So this is higher than 18. Kind of sounds like it's probably going to be ketones in a patient who's been vomiting, but always never rule out ethylene glycol and methanol. Um, so again, if you use Winner's formula, the bicarb is pretty normal. One and a half times the bicarb is 33, plus eight is 41. PCO2 should be normal, and it is. So here's another patient with a profound anion gap and a normal pH. In the, and again, I'm giving you the hard cases. I'm not giving you the simple cases. Well, I have a couple simple cases coming up. Um, so let's see if there's a metabolic alkalosis too. So this patient has anion gap of 27, normal's 10, 27 minus 10 is 17. The patient has 17 unmeasured anions of acid added to their serum. It buffers their bicarb down one to one. So their bicarb has come down 17. So add 17 to 22, you get 39. So that's a profound metabolic alkalosis. So this patient has a metabolic acidosis and a metabolic alkalosis. And again, leading to a normal pH. Th these are real cases. I, I've not made up these numbers. 40-year-old woman, history of gallstones, comes in with abdominal pain. Back in the day, we were measuring amylases. Um, so this patient, let's do a quick anion gap. One, anion gap's eight, so that's normal. So forget about Winner's formula. And here's another thing that sometimes beginners do, is they want to use Winner's formula in every electrolytes they see. No, you only use it when a patient has a metabolic acidosis. So we don't need to use Winner's formula. So this patient has an alkalemia. PCO2, which is acid, is elevated. They're hypokalemic and hyponatremic. So this is an individual who has a metabolic alkalosis. And remember that for every um, one, your bicarb is elevated. You hypoventilate about 0.6. So this patient's 24, the bicarb is 14 above normal, 14 times 0.6 is about 8, and that's what they're hypoventilating at. Hyponatremia, I love hyponatremia. Hyponatremia, the commonest electrolyte disturbance in emergency medicine. We don't regulate sodium, remember? We regulate water and we regulate tonicity. Hyponatremia, quite simply, is a disease of water excretion. Another pearl I'd like you to remember. It's all it is. Hyponatremia is a disease of water excretion. 
patient's not excreting free water. How do you excrete free water? You have to perfuse the kidney. You have to inhibit chloride through the ascending limb, or transport, I'm sorry, chloride through the ascending limb, and you have to totally inhibit ADH. If you don't do those things, you cannot excrete free water. So most patients who are volume depleted have appropriate ADH secretion because they are going to defend volume over tonicity. So the most common etiology of hyponatremia in our department, in your department, is volume depletion, because most of those patients are sick. The euvolemic hyponatremic patient who may have SIDH or, you know, they're more complex cases that need further evaluation, especially if their thyroid function or adrenal function is normal. And the other states are the edema states. So patients who have liver disease, congestive heart failure, and nephrotic syndrome and edema, their water and salt intoxicated, just more water than salt. So those are the three categories. But think of hyponatremia as a disease of water excretion. It's much, it all makes more sense that way. A patient with non-insulin-dependent diabetes uh, brought in the ED ill, anion gap is uh, high, 8. 28. So this patient has an anion gap, anion gap of 28. Now the bicarb already is markedly elevated. So these are numbers you might get a little panicky. Chloride's low, bicarb's high, sugar's high, pH is high. They have an anion gap. You know, this doesn't really make sense. So go through it. Patient has a metabolic acidosis on the basis of their anion gap. What is confusing to you, and it should be, is this patient has a metabolic acidosis with an elevated bicarb. How can that be? It can be. Patients with other processes can have significant metabolic acidosis due to lactate ketones, uremia, ingestion with an elevated bicarb. So don't let that fool you. So let's do the delta-delta. So this patient has an anion gap of 23, is that what we said, or 20, 28? Normal's 10, 28 minus 10 is 18. Add 18 to 30, their bicarb equivalent's 48. Well, this patient has a marked metabolic alkalosis. It needs to be treated for their metabolic alkalosis. And if I believe this patient had ketones in their urine, and you would define them as diabetic ketoacidosis, with a bicarb of 30 and a pH of 7.5 because the process of the metabolic acidosis is the same. The pathophysiology is the same. They just happen to have a concomitant severe metabolic alkalosis that is making their numbers look the opposite of what you're used to. So don't, don't fall into the trap that every patient with DKA has to have a low bicarb or a low pH. Um, so here's, this is a, I call this, again, I don't, I'm not insulting anyone. This is a med student's dream case, okay? So young girl presents short of breath. Whoops, those are her numbers. So she has anion gap of 26, metabolic acidosis. Use Winner's formula, one and a half times eight is 12, plus eight is 20, plus or minus two. She read the book, her PCO2 is 20. So she has a compensated metabolic acidosis. She's hyponatremic. 
probably partially related to the elevated glucose. And most importantly in these numbers, as I'm going to talk about in the next hour, is what? What's unusual about her presentation? Less than 10% of patients in DKA present like this. What's the one number up there that's very abnormal compared to what you're used to? Her potassium. Very rare to have a low initial potassium when you're acidotic, dehydrated, and in DKA. And, and remember, this is the patient population who you would want to vigorously resuscitate with potassium and saline prior to starting insulin. And we're going to talk a little more about that with the evidence next talk. So she gets treated appropriately for DKA. And the next morning, I run into the resident who says, I think she's still in DKA. Her bicarb is only 12. And I said to him, what's her anion gap? And her anion gap is now 12, right? So she's not in DKA anymore. She now has a hyperchloremic non-anion gap metabolic acidosis that you essentially see in every patient who you've treated in DKA and have gotten better because you've given them normal saline, they've lost bicarb equivalents in the form of ketones in their urine, and you've replaced it with chloride. It's that simple. And over time, with normal renal function, she'll hold on to bicarb and pee out the chloride and get back to normal electrolytes. This is not harmful. Okay? So that's, this is expected in the treatment of DKA, the hyperchloremic non-anion gap acidosis that resolves with time. Chronic alcoholic brought to the ED. This is a different case than the one I told you about previously, but and these are real numbers, real patient. Numbers look pretty normal. And anion gap is um, high, 9, 112, 22, 32, 25. So there's a metabolic acidosis, lactate, ketones, uremia, ingestion. Winner's formula, 1 and a half times 22 is 33, plus 8 is 41, about. So there's no respiratory disturbance. And again, I've done enough of these that when you see a patient with an anion gap metabolic acidosis who has a elevated bicarb and a near normal pH, you're now seeing this pattern. They have to have a metabolic alkalosis too. So the anion gap is 25, normal's 10, 25 minus 10 is 15, add 15 to the bicarb, and their bicarb equivalent's 37. So this patient has a metabolic alkalosis and a metabolic acidosis. And this is the same patient, uh, not the same patient, same presentation of the same disease. So this is a patient with classic textbook alcoholic ketoacidosis and will have very high um, acetone in their urine or beta-hydroxybutyric acid. And the therapy is thymine and D5 normal saline. This is the one anion gap acidosis, metabolic acidosis, that after you in, in, initiate therapy in the ED, within an hour, their anion gap starts to clear, and you can usually admit these patients to the floor. They don't need to go to a critical care area like most metabolic acidoses need to go. This is one of my favorite cases. It's a real case from, uh, from Penn when I was a resident. One of the CCU nurses came down, wasn't feeling well, asked me on the side if I would see her. Um, 
I made her register and I sent off, I made up the blood gas. I didn't do a blood gas on her, but those are her electrolytes. I drew them myself. There was no IV line, wasn't above a line. Um, so if you look at that, her anion gap is, uh, what, it's not much. What is it, 109, 19, so it's like 14. It's a little elevated, but she's markedly hyponatremic, hypokalemic, low chloride, very elevated bicarb. So she clearly has a severe metabolic alkalosis. And she's working. She's working up in the CCU, just feeling a little dizzy. Vital signs were normal. So I got a urine on her telling her I just wanted to make sure she wasn't pregnant. And I sent a urine chloride. And I sent a urine chloride because I was almost positive she was using either Bumex or Lasix and abusing that drug um, as a way to control her weight or whatever. And in this circumstance, with a chloride 67, I would have found chloride in her urine. And she had zero chloride in her urine. I did a urine chloride. So she had to be vomiting. So she, she was a, and, and reluctantly admitted, um, had an eating disorder and bulimia, and she was forcing herself to vomit and had gotten into this state purely through self-induction of vomiting. And, you know, so again, electrolytes can solve mysteries. And this was, uh, and, and again, real numbers. I'm almost done. Elderly woman, severe arthritis, found lethargic, confused. She, her anion gap is, uh, here, help me, 65, 35, 22. So she has a metabolic acidosis. One and a half times 20 is 30, plus eight is 38, plus or minus two. She has a respiratory alkalosis. And with an anion gap of, um, what did I say it was, 22? So normal's 10, 12 is her bicarb uh, added acid. Bicarb came down 12. So she also had a triple disturbance. So again, an anion gap with an elevated pH. Don't let that throw you off. Let me jump ahead. This was an interesting case we saw in our PGD a couple years ago. It was a 17-year-old girl who came in basically um, with respiratory distress, trouble breathing, severely weak. And those are her real numbers. She had an anion gap of 10, but had hyperchloremia and um, a low bicarb. Using Winner's formula, one and a half times 13 is 19, plus 8 is 27, plus or minus 2. Her PCO2 was a little elevated. She was trending toward a respiratory acidosis, a metabolic acidosis, um, and obviously a profoundly diminished um, potassium. Eventually, we sorted out that she was uh, sniffing glue and using toluene and had developed a, a severe K-wasting renal tubular acidosis leading to neoparalysis and um, a, meta a metabolic acidosis and a respiratory acidosis. And she needed special concoction that made her well. Um, this is a case I present as sort of a FYI. This was a case a long time ago an attorney in Philly asked me to look at to try to help him, 20, help the physician. 22-year-old female presented at 4.45 in the morning. She happened to be the daughter of one of the ED nurses at that institution. Um, fever, chills, cough, 36 hours. This is all off the chart. She's only on birth control pills. 
She was described as ill. She was tachycardic. Her respiratory rate was 30. She was febrile. She was given some Motrin and normal saline was started. Her white count was 17,000. She had 7% bands. The emergency physician thought he saw an infiltrate. Um, urine was negative for ketones. And those were her electrolytes. I'm sorry, they're sort of in that way, but if you, the electrolytes were described by the emergency physician as normal, probably because the bicarb was 20. If it had been 19, it may have gotten his attention. Um, but the anion gap is 23. It's a metabolic acidosis. There's no way around it. The patient has a metabolic acidosis. Lactate, ketones, uremia, ingestions, there's a metabolic acidosis. Um, so she was diagnosed with bronchitis, given a ZPAC prescription, no antibiotics in the ED. The nurse uh, documented those vital signs on discharge and even wrote ED physician aware. So obviously vital signs are vital. First thing we teach our residents on day one. And obviously we don't discharge patients with abnormal vital signs that we can't explain. Um, she came back 12 hours later. EMS found her wedged between the toilet um, and the wall. They had to get her out of the bathroom. She had a syncopal episode. She was hypotensive. She had 23 bands. Her repeat electrolytes, low potassium, bicarbs now 17, anion gaps 28. She got fluid, looked a little better, got tapped, and got discharged. And she um, died uh, that night, and at autopsy was found to have pneumococcal bacteremia, which may have killed her anyway. Um, there, are, there are two, three, four percent of patients who present with pneumococcal sepsis, even if given early antibiotics, go on to die um, from the SIR syndrome. She may have been one of them, but her earliest electrolytes obviously revealed a clue to a potentially fatal disease as the annals of internal medicine. This was, I presented this um, a version of this talk at ASAP. This is uh, somewhat humorous. Um, about eight years ago, I gave a pretest with uh, metabolic acidosis, alkalosis, mixed disturbance, triple disturbance. Gave this lecture, uh, then did a post-test and um, looked at the data. This there were 110 participants. The first time I did it, a lot of fourth-year students, residents, and attendings. The mean pretest score was less than one, so less than one answer was answered correctly before my lecture. 2.64 uh, was the post-test. No one got all the pre-test questions right. 67% got zero or one on the pre-test. 58% uh, learned something, got three or four right on the post-test. And there were 11 people who got zero on the pre-test and all four right on the post-test. So I did a follow-up study. I think I did this at Christiana um, a couple years later, and there were a lot of faculty and residents. And I did a multiple choice format because it was very difficult to grade. Um, and the mean pretest score was 1.3. I don't know, my 12-year-old could probably get 1.3, I would think. Um, the mean post-test score was 3. And uh, again, the P was significant. I tried to do a follow-up study, but it was, it was very hard. This was, um, this was a case we saw at Cooper about 10 years ago was one of our, we have a tradition of giving CPCs to our chief residents, and they present at the end of the year. This was one of our chief CPCs. 20-year-old, pregnant, 
nausea, vomiting, shortness of breath. This is, I think, the biggest anion gap I've ever seen. And it was 46. She was hypoglycemic, elevated creatinine, liver failure, um, one and a half times H12 plus H20 plus so. She had a little respiratory acidosis. Um, anyone have a clue to what this could be? Pregnant, she'd had headaches. Um, and so renal failure, elevated anion gap, um, hepatic failure, renal failure. Yeah, acetaminophen. So she was a, she was a sort of a chronic, taking a lot of acetaminophen. Um, she actually did okay. She did not require a liver transplant, or she, she actually survived this. Um, you know, I'm sincere about this. I give this talk all over the country, and lots of people email me acid-based cases they have, questions they have. I incorporate some of them in my, in my talk. If you have an interesting set of electrolytes, please feel free to email me. Chances are I'll get back to you within a day or two. Um, and love looking at numbers and um, going over them with you.